many in my parents' generation, and some of you here, sadly, are in my parents' generation, uh, you remember where you were the day that you heard the news that President Kennedy had been shot. My grandparents' generation, and my mother was just old enough, she was eight years old, remembers exactly where they were when they heard of the attack on Pearl Harbor. My mom happened to be at home at Hickam Field and watched the airplanes fly over her house. My generation will forever remember what took place on September the 11th of 2001. Even though I was pastoring in May, Texas, the uncertainty was palpable. I remember having to tell people, we really don't have to be afraid. There are no hot targets for Muslim attack around May, Texas. You just don't have to worry about that. We don't live near Dias Air Force Base where the many of the B-2 bombers or B-1 bombers were stationed. We don't live uh, in the Metroplex uh, around uh, Dias. And yet there was an unsettledness and there was somewhat of a fear. And we remember, uh, it's 21 years ago uh, today. And some of you, I know one was an air traffic controller. Remember Tim telling me some of the stories of going in that evening, I believe, he wasn't there in the morning and, and seen those blank screens. And uh, I have to imagine those blank screens uh, were pretty stark uh, around DFW when you're used to such uh, activity in the skies. And, and some of you were uh, in D.C. or near D.C. I know one of our members was working for the uh, federal government uh, not far from uh, the Pentagon. And so it, today is a day uh, for us to pause and remember. The scripture that was read this morning in Psalm 90, it just brings it home even that much more clearly. Because there were over 3,000 people that got up on that Tuesday morning of September the 11th and went to work, uh, whether they were a fireman or a police officer or they were a banker, worked for a law firm, they got up, went to work that day, or they got on an airplane to take a trip for business or take a trip for pleasure and did not see noon because their lives were snatched from them. And as we were hearing Psalm 90 read, what an incredible reminder that we don't know how many days we have. We just simply don't. We might have 70, or as the scripture says, 80, if we're strong. But we may not have 21 years or 30 years. And that's what makes our message so crucial. That's what makes Jesus and the message of the gospel so important. You know, I don't believe there is any more important news that you could share with your family or your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers. Because even if, if, if my very best friend had cancer and I knew a doctor that had the cure for that cancer, I would immediately get my friend connected to that doctor 
Now, whether that friend believed that that doctor could help, whether they submitted to the treatment, I, that's up to my friend. But I would immediately try to make a connection between my friend and that doctor. And yet, someone who dies of cancer only dies physically. Those who die in their sin die forever. They suffer an eternal death. And God has given us the cure for that. And when you couple that truth with the, the very fact of what we remember and some mourn today, we certainly and recognize that we don't know if we have tomorrow. We just simply don't know. I had my, my second oldest brother. Many of you knew him. He played softball with us. He was not much older than I am now. Ten years ago in August, went to church, came home. His wife went to do a showing. She was a real estate agent. He went out in the backyard to put some water in the dog pool so that the dogs could stay cool. Had a heart attack and died in the backyard. We just don't know. And so the, 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 the bottom line issue is because we don't know the number of our days, we need to be ready. It is that kind of sentiment that drove the Apostle John as he writes to the church in 1 John. In fact, when, when he wrote the Gospel of John and 1 John, uh, he wrote them with very similar purposes. And that's what I want to get into today. Today, we begin a new series, 1 John. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus as the author of of light and the author of love. Before we do, I want to take time just to pause and remember and pray for our nation. See, one other thing that happened on September the 11th, 2000, or September you know, the 11th, 2001, is we saw a nation come together. We were, as a nation, we were severely attacked, but we weren't broken. I'm afraid that today our nation suffers a greater attack, a spiritual attack, and we are broken. And so I want us to pause and, and pray, and then we'll begin to look at uh, the good news from 1 John. Father, we pause today to remember <laughs> most of us did not have a personal friendship or relationship with one of the 3,000 uh, who died suddenly and unexpectedly in the terrorist attack on our nation. But all of us felt it. All of us that, that were old enough to know what was going on felt the, the uncertainty, the fear that turned into anger. We felt the pride and uh, patriotism. We felt a love for our police officers and our firemen who we learned that day were the ones who would run into the burning building to carry people out. Uh, and, and Lord, we, we learned a lot. Lord, I'm afraid that so much of what we've learned, what we learned then, we have forgotten. And though our, our nation right now is not under a physical attack, we are under a spiritual attack. We're in a war. Father, we need you. 
In fact, we recognize that our only hope as, as individuals, as a community, as a culture, as a church, as a nation, is your grace and your mercy, and yes, your forgiveness for our sins, where we've turned our back on you. Father, I pray that we find encouragement and solace in the message of First John. As we get started this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, give us clarity of thought, give me clarity of words, that my words would be yours, and that your Spirit would communicate not just the truth, but the heart of the truth that can transform a soul. Let your spirit move today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the author of John, I'm going to do some introductory stuff today. The author of John is the author of the gospel of John. So we're going to be looking at 1 John, one of those three little books toward the end of your Bible that is one of those letters. Uh, He also wrote the gospel of John and the same author uh, wrote the Revelation later on. And so to help you understand, he is the one of the the 12 disciples that was not martyred. He was placed in exile and was punished for various reasons for his faith, but he was one who did not die a martyr's death. And so some of his writings were much later than some of the other Christian writings. Most believe that uh, this letter in particular, the epistle of 1 John, was written somewhere around 70 to 80 AD. So you're looking at... uh, 45 years or so, uh, round number away from uh, past the resurrection of Christ. And he had lived a, a long, faithful life as an apostle and writes this letter to the church. We find the purpose of 1 John specifically in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Here he tells us, uh, in fact, I'm going to read beginning in verse 11. This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, John is specifically writing this letter because in Christ, we can have eternal life. And outside of Christ, regardless of any other issues, regardless of, 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 of any other religion, philosophy, uh, worship practice, sin, uh, whatever, regardless of anything else, if you have Christ and have a relationship with Christ, you'll have eternal life. If you don't, you won't. It's that clear cut for John. I have to believe that John is remembering the words of Jesus that he also recorded in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So John goes on here and then he says, so I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, the purpose of this letter is slightly different than the purpose of the gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he gives us the purpose of the gospel. In in that thesis statement for the gospel, he basically says, these things I've written to you, I could have written the, the, you know, the activities of Christ, the miracles of Christ could have filled volumes, but I've written these things so that you might know that Jesus is the son of God and that in him you might have life. 
So the gospel was written so that you might come to believe and understand that Jesus is your hope of eternal life. He writes 1 John to the church who have already believed in Jesus so that they might know that they know that they know. Here's the bottom line. How many of you, I'll just throw this question out there because this is who he's addressing. How many of you, after you put your faith in Christ, however many years ago that was, at some point in your life, you've had questions and doubts? I have. I've questioned, I've doubted, I've wondered. John says, this letter I've written to you, church, so that you might know. It, this is all, that, that verse is also a good uh, response to the, those who say, well, you just can't ever really know if you're saved or not. You just can't really know for certain whether you have eternal life. John says you can. Go read what he wrote and you find the clues that will help you know that you know that you know. He wanted the church to have an assurance of their faith. Now, Dr. David Allen, in his commentary, he records four uh, purposes. Now, I, I believe that's the primary overarching theme, the purpose of the book. But he records four purposes for this letter that all point that direction. The first one is to combat false teaching. And I'm going to dig into that just a little bit before we dig into the text because it is that important. You've got to understand why John was writing this letter and who he was writing to and what issues he was addressing, and it will help you better understand why he wrote what he wrote. So to combat false teaching. Second, it had an ethical purpose. He was trying to deal with the issues of sin in the church, but also to help them understand the depth of the love of God and the characteristics or the character of God being love. Third, it was very pastoral. John had some concerns for the church and he had some concerns for uh, whom he, these believers whom he loved and say, you hear some very uh, pastoral fatherly language when he refers to uh, members of the church as my little children. And those whom he'd led to faith were, were like his kids in the faith. And, and his heart, you can hear being poured out to that. And you'll see that as we move through John or First John. And then fourth, it was very personal. And we see in today's text and, and that we'll end with in verse four, John says, one of the reasons I've written these things is so that you might that we might f have joy in you because of the restoration that's come, that our joy may be made complete. So John's writing it in some of somewhat a personal reason because he wants to see the church built up as the church brings him joy. So those are four of the primary purposes. Now, I pointed out that one of the first of those purposes was to address this false doctrine. What was the false doctrine he was addressing? In the early church, in particular the people that John was writing to, there had been an invasion of a, a philosophy that had become a doctrine in the church based on Gnosticism. And without getting real technical, because I don't want to spend too much time here, uh, the problem of this, this Gnosticism is a mixture of pagan mysticism and Greek mythology had kind of invaded the church. And the idea behind, there were two basic ideas behind Gnosticism. The, one of the basic ideas was that everything that is of the spirit is good. Everything that is of the flesh is bad. Okay? Everything that's of the spirit is good. Everything that's of the flesh is bad. Second, that salvation only comes through some special knowledge, some uh, extra high knowledge that's granted to those who are initiated into almost like a cult-like uh, 
system. And so the Gnostics were teaching uh, these two basic ideas, and that led to uh, a couple practical errors and a couple doctrinal errors that directly affected the church. The two practical areas were this. One of them was asceticism, okay? What that means is if my flesh is bad and my spirit is good, then I have to beat up my flesh, no, this is where people would do bad things to their flesh. They would cut themselves. They would, they would become monks. They would go live off by themselves and not talk to anybody for, for years. They would starve themselves. They would, all kinds of acts against the body because flesh is bad. And if I punish my flesh, then, then my spirit then gains control, so to speak, was the thinking behind it. The opposite of that also took place. And it was this idea of, it was licentiousness. It was basically, okay, if the flesh is bad and I can't do anything about it, then have at it. I just go out and party all I want, sin all I want, drink all I want, do whatever the feels good. You know, if it feels good to the flesh, do it. Who cares? Because it doesn't affect my spirit, which is separate, which is good anyway. Both of those are extremes that uh, came out of this Gnostic philosophy that, that John is going to try to address. And then there were two doctrinal errors. And this is really what today's passage is going to address is, is one of these doctrinal errors that came out of Gnosticism. The first one is that because flesh is bad, Jesus could not really have taken on human flesh. And so the Jesus that, that they were preaching, that the church was preaching and teaching, though he might have looked like he was a human walking around on earth, he was really basically some type of ghost. He was a spirit that had a human form, but certainly he could not really have taken on human flesh because human flesh is bad, right? That that's, comes out of that root of that Gnostic idea. Well, there's all kinds of issues and problems that that leads us to with the truth of who Christ said he is, in, in, in particular in how it relates to our salvation. Because if Jesus did not take on human flesh and suffer as we suffer and die a real death and resurrect it really uh, to new life, then we really don't have any hope. And so uh, the, the you have this issue of, of Jesus couldn't have been flesh. The second one was the opposite that Jesus, when he was born, he could not have been God because the spirit could not have come and dwelt inside, really inside of a human being. And so the Jesus was flesh, but he was Mary and Joseph's son. And then he only became the messianic figure when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Well, neither one of those ideas certainly is true. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, uh, though he had a heavenly uh, or an earthly mother, he did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. And the Spirit is the one who gave birth to Christ. And so John is going to address this Gnosticism as he tries to point his people to eternal life and tries to encourage them that they might truly know that they are believers, that they truly have eternal life. So with that, that foundation laid for the book of John, uh, we won't have to cover that, but I hope that you tuck that away in your head because you'll see some of the issues in John point back to uh, especially him trying to deal with this Gnosticism. Let's read these first four verses. This is the prologue or the introduction to the letter. And once again, John starts 
uniquely. He doesn't write like any other of the, the letters of the New Testament. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare it to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, John, of course, has to somehow uh, set his writing apart, it seems. If you'll remember, the gospel uh, of John begins with a very similar idea when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just as in the gospel of John, John here is going to equate the idea of the Word with Jesus. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've observed, what we've touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. When he refers to the word of life there, he's referring to Jesus. And he's going to uh, try to help us to see this full picture of who Jesus truly is. So don't forget where he comes from with his thought process, even in the gospel writing. He doesn't mention Jesus until down at the very end of verse 3. In fact, one of the things that makes this hard to read is you don't find the main verb of the first sentence. There's really only two sentences here in this prologue. The first sentence is the first three verses. And the main verb of that sentence is, we proclaim. Or uh, our translation is there, we declare to you. That's the verb. Everything else before that is a subordinate clause that connects to that verb. And so if we want to see what God is really trying to communicate or what John's trying to communicate to the church here, that's where we have to begin. It might be easier to read it beginning there and say, we proclaim to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we observe and what we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is what John is going to proclaim to the church. And one other grammatical issue here that will help you see this more clearly, in your Bible, if you're using the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible that I'm preaching from, verse 2 is set aside with dashes. Okay, There's a dash at the beginning of verse 2 and a dash at the end of verse 2 because that's a parenthetical statement, essentially. Uh, that's a separate clause, subordinate clause, that is in between uh, the main thought. So, this life that was revealed that we have seen, that we testify and declare to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. That Jesus, this life, is the one who was with the Father and he's been revealed to us. So with some of that grammatical idea laid out, let me, let me give you the main message here. So the primary message is this. From John, we proclaim to you the incarnate word of God. Jesus. The incarnate word means he is the one who actually took on human flesh. And John wants them to hear this. And you hear, it's almost like he's beating them over the head with these subordinate clauses. When he says, we heard him, we've seen him with our own eyes, we've examined him, we've touched him with our own hands. So there's two big thoughts here about this Jesus who John is going to proclaim. This, this eternal Christ who 
when you look at the parenthetical statement that was revealed to us, we've seen it testify and declare to you that what was with the Father was revealed to us. So this Jesus, this eternal life, we're going to let you know about. Why are we going to let you know about him? Well, first of all, he's from the beginning. He is God. Jesus was not some separate spirit somehow that uh, uh, just came upon the earth. Neither was he uh, someone who became God at his baptism, okay, or became a messianic figure at his baptism. He was from the beginning. When's the beginning? It's the beginning. <laughs> Jesus is God. You can go back to John chapter one and help flesh this out a little bit when he says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He wants us to understand that eternal life is in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. He was there in the throne room of heaven at the beginning of creation. He's never not been God. This, this, this eternal life that I want you to understand, that I want you to have confidence in, that I want you to know is found one place and it is in the one true living God. And Jesus is God. He's from the beginning. And so John here addresses this issue, is Jesus God? Is he fully God? Yes. He was from the beginning. But the bigger issue with most of the Gnostics that John was dealing with was not that Jesus wasn't God, it was that he really didn't show up in human flesh because he couldn't have. That was the more prevalent form of doctrinal error among the Gnostics. And so John addresses that this way. He says, I want you to understand that not only was he from the beginning, so most of you accept that, John's saying, he's going to nail that down. He was God. He is God. He was there from the beginning. But here's what I want you to, to, to know. What I heard with my own ears, what I saw with my own eyes, and it's not just John. He's using the, the plural, the first person here, our, he and other eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. And then he used another word for seeing that here that is translated in our version, what we have observed and so the, the difference there, the idea of see is if I see something go by, what I observe is something that I look at and I study. You get the difference. If, if I am to sit down and I'm in to, to intently observe and watch, John had a first hand look at Jesus for years. Rarely did Jesus leave John's sight. There were a few times when Jesus got in a boat and went off on his own, but quickly he came back to the disciples. The disciples came back to him. But even when he went up on the mountain in, the, in the, the, his transfiguration, John was there. When Jesus, the night before Jesus died, and he left some of the disciples uh, at, in, Gethsemane, in Gethsemane in the lower garden, and then he took three of the disciples closer to him when he prayed the night before he was going to be arrested. John was there. John was one of the three disciples who was closest to Jesus. And John is saying, I not only saw him, I not only heard what he had to say, and this is important because I heard it with my ears. When John says, sometimes when we, we say something like this, I believe God spoke to me, or I heard God, 
Well, sometimes I believe God has spoken to me through nature. We talked about that this morning. And if you're in a growth group, God says he speaks to us. He reveals himself through nature. He reveals himself through our conscience. So I believe God has spoken and, and God will speak through the human conscience, the spirit that he's placed inside of us. God speaks that way. That's not what John's talking about here. John's not saying, I heard God speak through, through nature. He's saying, I heard him with my own ears. Fleshly voice. He was here, okay? So I heard him. I saw him. I observed him. I studied him. I was close to him. And not only that, we touched him with our own hands. He was, a, he was physical. He was here. I wonder when, when John writes that, if he even thinks of Jesus in the upper room seven days after his resurrection, when Jesus says, look here, see my hands, see my side, take your Take, take your hand and thrust it into my wounds. John says we touched him. He was physically here. John wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is the incarnate God. He is the one who stepped out of heaven. As one old pastor said, I heard a few years ago, and he turned the stars into a staircase and he walked down and stood upon this earth and walked among us. He entered a virgin's womb, was born of a virgin, grew up, ate, drank, laughed, cried, went to parties, turned water into wine, and lived life among us. He is God, the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is not some ghost. He was not some apparition when he was on this earth. He was and he is still God. He always has been. He was when he was walking around this earth and he will be forevermore. Jesus is God. Physically, when he was on this earth, he was the physical expression of the Godhead. Hebrews 1 says that in him we saw God in all of his glory. We got to see the full picture of who he is. John wants to go on and say, you know, God is love. You know why I know God's love? Because I saw it in Christ. I see what real love is and what a beautiful picture John gives us. And, and he, so John's argument here when, when in our growth groups this morning, part of what the argument we have for how do we know there is a God is nature and our conscience and, and God's wrath and righteousness and justice and, and so many of, of the attributes and the picture of what God has given us in, our, in the heavens and on the earth. that We have all kinds of evidence around us and in us that there is a God. But John didn't have to rely on that. John wants his, the church to know, I saw him. I heard him. I walked with him. I observed him. I touched him. He is real. Jesus was alive. The living Christ is God. And you can believe it and you can trust it and you can put your faith in it. And that it is through him that you have hope. So John, John's proclamation that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. Why does he make that proclamation? So you have kind of two subordinate thoughts in this text. The first one is this. 
what we saw and what we heard, we declare to you so that. When you read the so that, you know that John has a purpose. He's looking for some result, okay? What is, what is John looking for? Why is he making this proclamation? Why does it matter that, he's, that, that, that Jesus is God, that it's so important that he's going to go tell everybody about it? that he's going to make sure that the church knows about it, that he was going to write all of the stories. Why is it that John faced beatings and persecution? And why is it that John faced exile for writing these things down and proclaiming them? What made it so important? Two reasons here. Now, these are kind of in reverse order the way I normally preach them. I'm just going to preach them the way John gives them to you in his word. First, remember he's writing to the church, so there's already an assumption that they're saved, so that you may also have fellowship with us. This Jesus is a restorer of broken relationships. Jesus is the one. It is through him and, and, that we can have healing in our relationships one with another. We are walking in a relationship, John and his, his compatriots, he says, who's, who he's referring to in the plural. Basically, John's saying, look, I love y'all. I don't want there to be a broken relationship between us. Here's the truth about Christ, and I'm writing these things so that our relationships can be made whole, that you may have fellowship with us. It is only that we, we can only have true, deep, meaningful, everlasting fellowship with those who also believe and have faith and trust in the, in the same God, in Christ. True Earnest, intimate fellowship is rooted in that relationship that we have in Christ. He is a restorer of relationships. Paul says that God has made me an ambassador of reconciliation because Christ came as a reconciler. But it's not just about the horizontal relationships. That's where oftentimes Christianity misses it. Sometimes it misses it on the other axis, but we'll look at both axes here. In Christ, we have a command to love those around us. In Christ, we have the command to give water to the thirsty, to give food to the poor, to visit those who are hurting and in prison. We have a command to care for the needy. We have a, we have a command in Christ to take care of the widows. There's no question about that. But oftentimes where the church runs off the rails is we focus only on that horizontal relationship. Christ came to bring love and joy and peace on earth. Yes, he did. But Christ's first purpose that Jesus tells us is what we see in the second, the vertical axis that John gives us here. He said, we have so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, that word indeed is, a, is, a, is there for emphasis. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The most important reason that I proclaim this truth to you about who Jesus is in, in, in his very nature, that he is God, both in flesh and in spirit. The reason I, I bring that message to you, because it's in him and only in him that you're going to find eternal life, period. And you cannot have a relationship with the Father and the Son unless you have a relationship with the Jesus whom I'm proclaiming whom I'm preaching. If you desire eternal life, you can only find that life one place. And he's already emphasized that in the parenthesis there in verse two. It is in him that you find 
eternal life. Christ and Christ alone. Why is it that John finds it so crucial and so um, important to preach this message? It's because it's through Christ and only through Christ that you can find eternal life, that you can have a relationship with the Father. It's when you put your hope and faith in Him as the one only true God who has stepped down on this earth to redeem you from your sin that you're going to find eternal life. Our only hope of a future, of eternal life, of, of having life beyond the grave is found in Christ, period. That's why this message is so important to proclaim. And that's why John spends so much time driving these nails home. Now, he's writing to the church, remember, that we're already saved. Why is this so important? Because when you begin to lose sight of who Jesus truly is and your faith grows weak, you'll find that you won't share that truth. John's desire is that you know, that you know, that you know, that you are saved, that you have eternal life. And he's written this letter so that you might know that you have eternal life because it's just that important. There's nothing else as important. The cure for cancer is not that important. And no matter how great a brain surgeon is and how many lives he saves, it's not as important because they can only save the body. Jesus is the one and only Savior of the soul. And we have to understand, put this in modern day vernacular, I don't know that I like this phraseology, but we have to get Jesus right. We have to understand who he is. We have to know that he is the Son of God and that he is the one and only hope of eternal life. And we can preach it, but whether or not we take it and we tell those whom we love, that really is the better picture of whether we believe it or not. See, if I have some question in the back of my mind that there might be some other way, then I may take the easy way out. I may not pray for my brothers or pray for my, my family or go tell them because they might not understand or they might not like to hear it. But if I truly believe that Jesus is the one and only way, the one and only hope, that he is the one true son of God who was from the beginning and whoever will be, I won't be able to keep my mouth shut around those I love about the nature of who he is and that he's their only hope for everlasting life. And this message of Jesus, because of that, is the only message that can do what John desires to do there in verse 4. Make my joy complete. See, there's a whole lot of other things that you could do that might make me happy, John's saying. But my joy is going to be complete when you get it right about Jesus. When you understand that He is the one true living God and He's your only hope of eternal life. Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. He's our Savior. He was God before He stepped on earth. He was God on earth, and He's God today. He always has been. He always will be. 
You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor,